welcome to this two-part episode of Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Do you remember, if you came to Christ perhaps later in life, do you remember what it was like before you came to Christ? I came to Christ at about 15 years of age. Some of you obviously came to Christ very young, but if you came to Christ later in life, do you remember your life before, what it was like? Put your hand. Let me just get a little survey here. Some of us remember it well. If, uh, if you do, you know, if you're four and you trust Christ, it's hard to have sort of a debauchery of a life between zero to four. Uh, but some, some maybe, yeah. Um, uh, but when you come to Christ, as I did in my teens, I left a pretty licentious, uh, drug-using, crazy lifestyle. Uh, and my coming to Christ was a major change in my life. And Remembering what we were like, remembering those days, if you came to Christ later, is of some value. We have to be careful we don't go there and live in a place of shame and guilt and never move beyond that. But there is a healthiness to going back to that boundary, to remembering from where we have come and what Christ has done in our lives in a good way to remember we don't live that way anymore. We live differently now because we're in Christ. We have been in a series called The Walk of Wisdom. We began with four guest speakers, and then Bill and Lloyd and I chose passages that we have enjoyed personally, that we wanted to teach the concept of living wisely, living in wisdom from those passages. And a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, which has five times the word walk occurs in it. And we began looking at the first one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Uh, We've been called out of a lifestyle to Christ, and we now represent a king. So you and I are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we're now heirs of a king, heirs of a kingdom, illegitimate, throwaway children, that by grace, through faith, salvation, we're adopted into an inheritance we could have never dreamt of and given eternal life with him. And as a result of that, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Today, I want to look at another set of walks. There are five he uses in chapters 4 and 5. We pointed those out a couple of weeks ago. But I want us to look at this one, which really is walking away. Walking away from what we were. The paramount one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. But now we're to walk away. And look what he tells the Ephesian believers and what he tells you and me. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 17. Walk away. Know what you were leaving, what you are leaving. Verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity 
with greediness. Paul begins insisting, imploring that this great importance no longer walk the way the Gentiles walk. Walk in a manner worthy. Now we're talking about no longer walk the way you used to walk. Ephesus was a culture that was steeped in every sexual perversion imaginable. They were licentious, they had idols that were innumerable, and through Acts and through Paul's writing and through first century documents, we know Ephesus was a a, a wicked, immoral, evil, covetous society. Everyone did what they wanted to do, what was right in their own eyes. In fact, it's a lot like the United States of America today. And I'm reminded of what Dr. Hendricks often told us. This is not what God's word would say if God was here. It is what God is saying because he is here. And what applies to the Ephesian believers applies to you and me in the exact same way. So he begins by this statement. It's a topic sentence. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Look again at verse 17. Walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then he's going to explain that topic sentence in the verses that follow. Notice verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Now we're talking about the way they're thinking, their understanding is dark. We're going to look at some other pictures for a moment. But just as as a reminder, this is changing our mindset. We'll see this in great detail in this passage. It's not just changing our mind about something. It's changing our mindset. This, I believe, is the single tension in the spiritual life. How do we live the way Christ wants us to live in a carnal, physical world? The tension of the spiritual life is not just doing right things. It's not just behavior modification. The tension of the spiritual life is knowing God's Word and God's Spirit who indwells the believer and being submissive to His power to take the Word of God and transform us by His power. We cannot make our flesh any better. We're not polishing the brass rails on a sinking ship. We need Christ's power, His Spirit who indwells us to do this. You cannot do this in the flesh. Yes, willpower and discipline and and self-motivation are great things. It won't change you spiritually. might get you out of bed and start start it in the morning, might get you reading your Bible, but that in and of itself cannot change us. It requires Christ's Spirit who indwells us, and Paul's going to elaborate on this in this passage in a very helpful way, changing our mindset about how we live the spiritual life. Before we had a mindset, before we might sin and have a nagging guilt or shame or a conscience of some kind, But it's very different now once we've trusted Christ. Notice we lived in darkened understanding, in ignorance. Paul writes in a similar fashion in Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I can go back to my before-I-knew-Christ days, and, uh, uh, you know, I used all kinds of drugs, and I'm here to tell you, I inhaled, and I held it as long as possible. I wanted the full effect of those drugs. And I used those drugs indiscriminately because I was escaping something. 
And most of the time, there was nothing in the back of my mind telling me this was wrong. I wanted to do those things. That's my sin nature. Coming to Christ, things began to change. Now look at how he describes this darkened walk. Look again at verse 18. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Excluded from the life of God. We often hear the quip, ignorance is bliss. Uh, doesn't apply biblically or theologically. Ignorance is dangerous. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And as a believer, you and I read those words, those words should be chilling to us. That friends and family, people we love, are excluded from a life with God. And it should also remind us from where we've come. We're all dying. We're all bound to die. Um, we don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. It's reality. Funerals populate our calendar enough to remind us we are all dying. It's inevitable. And much of our life is just dulling the pain of the inevitable, dulling the pain that we experience with injustice and all sorts of things that happen. And when we're darkened in our mind, all we see is, well, I better do what I want to do, enjoy, be true to myself, yada, 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 because in the end we all die anyway, so I may as well have fun and do what I want to do. My passion, who I am, be who I am, and all the sort of rhetoric that's so part of the American mindset today. But they're ignorant of God. And because of that, they're locked in death. Secondly, verse 18, the hardness of their heart. Again, perhaps you remember, before you came to Christ, your heart was hardened. I could do things, and it did not bother me. I could say very hurtful things, and it didn't bother me. I could lie, and it didn't bother me. And when our minds are darkened, when we live a lie... When we choose to sin because we want to, with no fear of consequences, not even that little conscience talking to us sometimes going, you probably shouldn't do this. You know better than this. Your mother wouldn't be happy. You might get caught. That's the worst we ever think or fear. In reality, our hearts become hardened. You know, if you're a parent, when you raise children, you see this very early in our kids' lives. When they're toddlers and they're going to do something and you tell them no, and they give you that look full intending on doing what you just said not to do. It's a delightful experience. <laughs> Depravity in your home. You see it right then and there. Don't do that, and they smile and do it anyway. And you know right there, that's human nature. That's who we are. We're darkened. We're selfish. Our focus is hard. It's tragic when we see it in children and teenagers and college students. It's, it's incredibly tragic when we see adults do what they want to do because they don't care. They will do whatever they want to do. They'll choose to sin. They'll choose to lie. They'll choose to hurt other people. They'll choose injustice, and they don't care because they're darkened. They're hard in their heart. When I don't care about what God thinks, my heart is hard. When I don't care about what Christ cares about, your heart, my heart, is hard. A hard heart has no affection for God. A hard heart has no affection for Jesus. A hard heart is only concerned about self. 
Verse 19, we become callous. Having become calloused. As if a hard heart's not bad enough, we become calloused. Now, I believe these are a progression. You think of uh, men and women who play stringed instruments, they have to have a certain callous on their fingers. If you're a craftsman, a tradesman, if you're a runner, if you are a dancer, you've got to have a certain callous on your feet or you can't do that very long. And if you lay off running or lay off dancing for a while, or lay off playing the guitar for a while, you have to rebuild a little bit or your feet will kill you, your fingers will kill you until you get a callous. What is a callous? A callous deadens pain. A callous deadens pain. And calluses are good things in the aforementioned th stuff. But a calloused heart is a dangerous thing. Because what should pierce our heart, what should affect our mind, what should cause us to feel guilty, feel shame in a proper way, to say, am I doing the right thing? When we're hardened in our heart, then our hearts can become calloused and things don't bother us anymore. We're dead to that feeling. Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey have written articles and books on the subject, uh, the gift of pain, the, the gift nobody wants, um, and so forth. Phil's first book about uh, living with pain and the, the extraordinary writings. Dr. Paul Brand worked with lepers or what he preferred to call Hansen's disease, the disease that it's not contagious, it can't be transmitted. Hansen's, he was one of the leading physicians who understood it had to do with neuropathic pain reception. And that's why he wrote the book, The Gift of Pain. Because a leper uh, can be pushing a broom or shoveling uh, all day long, and he or she doesn't know a blister is developing, doesn't know to bandage or stop or put a glove on. They just keep working, and that blister becomes an abscess. That abscess ends up in losing fingers. They lose their toes. Many lepers will lose their hands and feet. They'll lose their eyesight because they don't know that there's something in their eye. They don't blink like you and I blink when we have a little irritation. And so they lose that pain ability. And he spent years trying to develop systems that would create pain in Hansen's disease feet. How do you make pain in their hand when they don't feel things that are hot, that can burn them? So he calls it a gift of pain because you know when to stop. You don't want to put a glove on. You don't want to just change the position of your hand a little bit, working a rake in the yard too often. I swept out my uh, garage yesterday in about 35 seconds, and I started feeling hot spots. I'm such a wimp. I have hot spots on my hand. I have to move the broom a few times because I'll get a blister in a matter of moments because I'm such a wimp. If you do it all day long, you work with your hands, you have calluses. But a calloused heart is a dangerous thing because you no longer feel pain. 19, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The conclusion is that the Gentile way of life is obstinate, is stubborn. You're excluded from God. You're hardened in your heart toward God. You're calloused in your heart toward God. You don't care about this, and you're given over to practice sensuality. Practice here is an unusual word in the New Testament. Here it means a sustained interest in something. We pursue something because we have a sustained interest in it. Some of us have hobbies. Some of us could spend all day long and never tire on our hobby. That's a pursued interest. That's a, we think of practice like practicing the violin when we're a kid. 
Nobody, well, one out of what, a thousand liked practicing the piano or practicing the guitar or practicing the drums. Most of us hate the concept of practice. This practice means a sustained interest in something. And I look at my life, the one thing I have a sustained interest in that's never gone away is eating. <laughs> I could eat all day long, I, especially things that are supposedly bad for me. I just like to eat. I have this appetite. Probably you do too. You don't meet many people that don't like to eat. Some might struggle with eating issues, but we like to eat. It feels good to put fat and carb and sugar and grease in my veins. Five guys every six weeks, whether they need it or not. It's a good prescription for everybody. Get that grease in there. What do we practice? What do we have a sustained interest in? Paul says their sustained interest is in every kind of impurity with greediness. It's not bad enough that the interest is ongoing is that we're greedy toward that insatiable greed, covetousness, immorality. Peter O'Brien writes, the indecent conduct already described was practiced with a continual lust for more. The pagan way of life was characterized by insatiable desires to participate in more and more forms of immorality. Ultimately, it becomes a vicious circle because new perversions must be sought in order to replace the old. This is why pornography doesn't satisfy. You don't look at pornography once. If pornography satisfied our sexual appetites, we'd look at it once and never again. But it's insatiable. And so it's more and more and more and more. Substances to give us a euphoric feeling to get away from the pain emotionally or whatever of life, they, they don't. One time isn't enough. I remember one of our children had their appendix taken out and um, they were given morphine and they were laying back in the bed and they said, I could get used to this stuff. <laughs> Takes the pain away. If you take it for the euphoric effect, you don't just take it once and go, oh, I felt good. You take it again and again. And what happens, you have to increase the kinds, the amounts, you experiment. Every, every sin in life is insatiable. And that should remind our mindset it cannot satisfy. Sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. There are legitimate ways to have sexual intimacy. There are legitimate ways to live in a painful world. There are legitimate relationships that will satisfy in community and not degrade us into sin and immorality. But sin is a deception that if I sin, I'll get this satisfied. And the fact that it's insatiable proves it never satisfies. And that's the cycle because new perversions must be sought to replace the old. Well, that's where we were called from. That's what we're to walk away from, Paul says. Remember, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. We're called to be representatives of Christ. We represent a king, an inheritance, Forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, freedom from the consequences of our sin. We're given a new life in Christ. As a result of that, walk differently. Now he says, remember, walk away from, you Ephesians, you Middle Tennesseans, walk away from the things that you were called out of. Now watch verse 20, the big change, the new self. But you. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him 
and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, note the phrase, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, mindset, remember, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Verse 22, lay aside the old self. Verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Walk away, know what you've left behind, walk away, now we have the new self. Now notice the verbs, learned, heard, taught. Sounds like a schoolroom, doesn't it? Learned, heard, taught. We learn a subject. You might learn algebra, for example, and you learn the quadratic formulas, and you learn all these things, and you take tests, and you show that you've learned algebra. Learning in this context is more at knowing we don't learn Christ. I, I took a subject and I took Christ 101 and 102, and now I know Christ. This is a relational knowledge. So when he begins in verse 20, you did not learn, you, you, didn't, you don't know Christ in that way. You don't know him in the aforementioned sinful, callous, darkened ways. You've been called out of that. Secondly, heard. You paid attention to it. You understood it. We differentiate when a a person's listening versus hearing. And the differential is, do you understand what I've said? It can be an employee. It can be your husband, your wife, your child, a friend. You're talking to them or they're talking to you. You're not listening to a word they're saying. You just appropriately go, mm-hmm, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. You can, you can do that all day long. And it, you feign like you're listening. We're all experts at that, right? But if you listen and you hear, you understand something. You didn't learn Christ in that way. You know him. You heard him. And by the way, we hear him from the word, from the apostolic teachings we call our New Testament, the mind of God in print. And we've been taught not by him, but in him. And this is a relational construct here. Look at him. Learned, heard, taught. By the way, these are not imperative verbs. The best way to explain it would be these are positional relationships. Stay tuned for part two of this special episode of Michael Easley in Context. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest news and information. This is Michael Easley in Context. Don't let the world teach you theology. Theology.